0: Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sun, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet, wherever you might be listening from today. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to the Elders of the past, those of the present, and the emerging Elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health partnership with New South Wales Health.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Peregrine Centre's Rural Mental Health podcast. I'm Dale Raftery, I'm a psychologist and a research associate at the Peregrine Centre. On our podcast today, we're exploring trauma, how this may show up for our clients and how to manage trauma presentations when we're not trauma specialists. Joining me today is none other than the Peregrine Centre's very own director, Rebecca Sung. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank Can you. I get you to introduce yourself?
0: Yes, I'm Rebecca Sung. I'm the uh, director of the Peregrine Centre and a uh, clinical psychologist and family therapist. Uh, and I have some specialty in trauma. I actually began my career as a foster care caseworker. And I worked in uh, the place called the Alternate Care Clinic, which was a mental health clinic for kids in out-of-home care, before I moved on to the University of Wollongong. And uh, I did do a stint uh, managing mental health services in rural and remote locations uh, before I started the Peregrine Centre.
1: Right. So, just been everywhere from the sounds <laughs> of things. Okay, so as with every podcast episode, these questions that we'll be talking through today have been developed from feedback from rural mental health practitioners. Um, So let's get into it. So, Rebecca, trauma feels like a little bit of a hot topic at the moment um, and certainly feels like there's an uptick in discussion given the state of the world. I'm wondering if you could provide us with a bit of an overview on just what trauma is.
0: Well, yes, and this is probably a bit of a um contentious kind of issue. What is trauma? Well, technically, according to the DSM, trauma is when you are threatened with uh, either your life or serious injury or you might find out that somebody very close to you has had that happen to them. Of course, it includes sexual violence. But, you know, in many ways, trauma is broader than that for a lot of people mm-hmm. and there are lots of people who would – describe their reaction to a particular event as kind of traumatic, um, but in fact, you know, maybe it wasn't a threat particularly to their life, but to their self-identity or who they are. So, it is, I think, a little bit broader than people often talk about.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really nice distinction between that life-threatening thing and also the identity-threatening. It's really important to draw out. How does trauma relate to a diagnosis of PTSD? Does everyone who experiences trauma go on to develop PTSD?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know me, Dale. I'm not really a a diagnosis person. Uh, I think diagnoses can be helpful, Mm -hmm. but they can be extremely unhelpful for people. Uh, But technically, when we're talking about PTSD, we are talking about a particular cluster of symptoms, and they include things like re-experiencing, so, uh, flashbacks, nightmares, those kinds of things. And really you're looking for this idea of, uh, it feels like I'm back there, those kinds of re-experiencing symptoms. And then avoidance of tra- you know, anything to do with the trauma, anything that reminds you of the trauma. And then this other thing, which we call hypervigilance, which is kind of head on the swivel, always being on alert, making sure that you're always thinking about safety. So when we talk about, you know, is everybody who's been through a really difficult situation traumatized or PTSD, one of the things about PTSD, you have to have had it for a while. So uh, if you've just experienced the trauma yesterday, you can't have PTSD today because what you're experiencing is completely normal. You know, if something really terrible happens to you, those things that I just mentioned are going to be usually how the body would react. To those mm-hmm. things. So PTSD, they do say you've got to you've got to be well, you know, in terms of the time frame, maybe that's a little bit grey, but let's say two months, three months down the track, you've got to be still experiencing those kind of symptoms to be diagnosed with PTSD. That doesn't mean to say that you're not in great distress at the time. And the DSM five obviously has some classifications for that sometimes it's called adjustment disorder but this idea that of course you might need help or someone to talk to at that time even though you might not meet criteria for PTSD uh, I think makes a lot of sense so let's just talk about people in distress mm-hmm. and people who whose bodies have adapted to a particular traumatic
1: incident yeah that makes a lot of sense um, and we certainly wouldn't want to refuse treatment to someone because they don't meet a strict set of criteria.
0: I mean, having said that, there are lots of people who experience, let's say uh, natural disaster is a good example, where people are in fires or in floods, and then lots and lots of people have these kinds of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And that is um, totally understandable. And lots of those people might think, oh, do I need to seek help? But actually help is a little thin on the ground right at the beginning. And so it is worth thinking, okay, is this a normal kind of reaction to really distressing events Mm -hmm. where I'm threatened and serious injury has happened? Uh, Or is it something that um, I really do require a counsellor or somebody to talk to? And I always think um, that's a hard decision to make by yourself, Mm. And it's a good good thing to talk about with people that you care about Mm -hmm. and that you respect. But it's also uh, usually in the evacuation centres and things like that, there are people circulating around who would be able to have that chat with you, your local kind of ramp coordinator or people who are doing um, kind of relief efforts,
1: those kinds of people. It may well be worth talking to those guys. Okay. So if we then think about those guys who we would be talking to, How might they assess for trauma? Like where where is the line between a normal reaction and a traumatised one? When
0: you're talking about PTSD, I think you're really talking about, in my mind, the metaphor is um, the inability to process what has happened into a memory. Mm -hmm. So I always think about this metaphor of, um, you know, when you're trying to file a file and you're really lazy and you're in a hurry (laughs) and you haven't filed it properly and it's sticking up Mm -hmm. and you keep trying to close the drawer... And the drawer keeps opening at that point because you haven't filed it properly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And lots of people haven't filed it properly because it's terribly frightening Mm -hmm. to to pick up that file and read it. However, then the drawer keeps getting stuck at that particular file. So people who are experiencing, not as a memory, but it's like I'm back there, Mm. then I think
1: then you're really talking about sort of PTSD stuff. And so for clinicians, when they have someone in the room in front of them, what are their particular measures or particular questions that they should be asking?
0: I think it's, uh, I mean, I think it's good to ask about trauma mm. and I think it's, it's good to ask directly for a couple of reasons. One is it's incredibly common. We do know that uh, things like complex trauma, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, yeah. uh, are extremely common. Mm -hmm. And and particularly with people who may seek mental health services. So you can ask directly, of course, on a form, on your intake form, those kinds of things. You can uh, use questionnaires, uh, things like the crops for children if you're looking for um, something for kids under 18. But I would also say that you might want to just do a very simple screener about re-experiencing symptoms. Do you ever feel like you're back there? Not like it's a memory, but it's happening right now. And keep your eyes out for hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. People who sit very close to the door, who are always scanning all the corners, who seem very um, easily startled, who who are often very sensitive not just to physical threats but kind of uh, relational threats. So we'll talk more about that in a minute, I'm sure. <laughs> but th- that kind of idea of people who are sensitive – in inverted comments. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that points towards people who are very interested in safety and security, and that's I think worth asking people about.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really nice point. Thinking about not just the physical safety, but the relational safety that might be there as well. So you did bring up complex trauma, mm-hmm. um, and that was something that a lot of uh, the respondents to our surveys were talking about. And you, what is complex trauma?
0: Well, complex trauma is not a technical thing yet. You know, there's Mm. a lot of um, political pressure trying to put complex trauma into the DSM-5 and so on. Uh, So there isn't an accepted um, definition, but usually what people are talking about is repeated trauma. And usually they're talking about developmental repeated trauma. So that's trauma that happens when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're also usually talking about attachment-based trauma or re- attachment disruption. So that is being hurt by the people who you're supposed to trust, people who are supposed to look after you, or not being protected by the people that you love and trust. So the reason that those things are complex trauma is different from your one-off PTSD, there's several things. One is uh, one-off PTSD, I've already kind of got my ideas about the world built into me. Mm-hmm. So we would we might call them schemata or schemas. So there's this kind of idea that, okay, I know who I am and I know about the world and all that kind of stuff. And then something really terrible happens to me and that is contradictory to the things I've previously believed. Yep. When we're talking about complex trauma, we're often talking about people who have no chance to develop a sense of self uh-huh. because they're under trauma from the very beginning. And that, um, I think, can lead to a very sometimes confusing for people presentation. Sometimes when people get a diagnosis of something like borderline personality disorder which looks like at its core is a failure of self. You know, it's this idea, I don't really know who I am, Mm -hmm. therefore I'll be really different for different people in the hopes they won't abandon me. Yeah,
1: that relational safety.
0: Exactly, exactly. So um, what happens often in complex trauma is I develop a self that is least likely to be abandoned. Mm -hmm. And I develop a bunch of strategies which, in fact, uh, force people to attach to me. I try to make the unpredictable predictable, uh-huh. uh, and they can be 100% effective. Some of them are very effective, and some of them are not very effective, but they're the only choice I have. So when we're talking about complex trauma, we're often talking about the, the very self being kind of different. Then, of course, when we're talking about complex trauma, which is developmental, we're talking about brains trying to grow in circumstances where it's not safe. And we used to think that wasn't really a big deal. Like people would just, you know, grow out of it. They'd go to a safe space and their brains would fix themselves up. Mm -hmm. What people like Bruce Perry have found is that the constant kind of cocktail of stress hormones of being in a really unsafe space uh, prevents the brain growing from the way it should grow. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you know much about how the brain grows. A little bit. Okay. So uh, when you're a baby... You are born with a perfectly developed reacting brain, or some people call it a fight-flight-freeze system, which is probably familiar to most people. Uh, But what you don't have is much of a thinking brain. Mm -hmm. No offence to babies, but that's basically what we're all born with. And we have some beginnings of a feeling brain, but it definitely takes some time to develop. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens when you have complex trauma is the development of that feeling brain the development of that thinking brain are inhibited by these stress hormones. Basically, mm-hmm. it's also because you're not really using your thinking brain. And that's what we know about brains: use it or lose it. Basically, sure. So then, uh, these children grow up with this beautifully adapted uh, security system or alarm system, and then not much of a thinking brain. And then the other thing you really notice on the brain scans for kids who've grown up in these situations is that they're missing these long integrative fibres or kind of pathways between different parts of the brain. So there's actual structural differences. Absolutely, yes. If you read Dan Siegel, he Mm -hmm. has a lot about how the brains of these kids. In America, they sometimes call them a maltreatment sample. These kinds of kids look different. And so those integrative fibres between the different parts of the brain For instance, when I use my thinking brain to manage my feeling brain, I use an integrative Mm fiber, or probably several. So when I don't have that pathway, then you say to me, hey, calm down, do some good self-talk, you know, it's going to be okay, nobody's going to die, blah, blah, blah. In fact, I'm sort of missing the hardware for that. Mm. So you can put all the software you like, but I'm missing the hardware. So one of the things we have to do when we think about complex trauma is actually growing the hardware. Hmm. Sometimes people are very worried. They say, oh, oh is my child's um, brain damaged in some mm-hmm. way? Is there some um, problem? But actually what all we're saying is they're adapted to a certain way, and mm-hmm. that is the unpredictable, unsafe situation, and we're going to try and adapt them to a new safe, predictable situation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But it takes time. Mm-hmm. And when we grow brains, really what we're asking people to do is make two parts of the brain light up at the same time. That's a really simple kind of explanation of what we're doing. So I always explain it like, whenever I finish dinner, I really want to eat chocolate Mm -hmm. because every day after dinner, I love a piece of chocolate. Sure. So because those two parts of my brain light up over and over and over again, there's a kind of super highway between those two parts of my brain. Mm -hmm. What do lots of kids with complex trauma have is this super highway between feeling close and feeling threatened. So the very feeling of being intimate with somebody, parent, whatever, actually makes me feel unsafe. Right. And what we're trying to build is closeness and security, feeling safe, feeling like things are going to be okay. That takes time. Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You you brought up Dan Siegel and now I'm thinking about the hand model of the brain. Yes, yes. And they're sort of, this is great for a podcast, but their um, front brain is not really even there to cover their little alarm system.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that kind of, um, yeah, front brain or thinking brain or frontal lobe or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, and, and as Dan Siegel would say, you know, when you're calm, it's obviously online as much as it can be online. Yeah. Yeah. When you are what we call in the red zone or you've you've been triggered in some way, then it disappears. And I know Dan Siegel says it flips, you know, flips a lid. Uh, I like the idea that it just goes off, that it's (laughs) it's, um, taking a little holiday because it's actually a crisis. Because it's Mm a crisis, perceived crisis, not necessarily a crisis, then actually uh, it defers to the person who's really great in a crisis, which is the reacting part of the brain.
1: So, I'm thinking about – we're talking a lot about children and and working with children and redeveloping their pathways. How might you work with someone – so, there's a child who does have this um, trauma, but the way that they respond with their trauma is to be um, reactive. They're externalizing. They can – get a bit aggressive, how would you work with the parents around managing boundaries and safety while also keeping in mind how the child is surviving?
0: 100%. And, and look, that's not just for c- complex trauma, right? With, sure, yeah. <laughs> everyone who's worked <laughs> with a kid who sometimes has tantrums thinks to themselves, how on earth am I supposed to manage that? Yes, that's true. So um, there's a few things, I guess. One is, uh, the first question I always ask is, is it actually unsafe for you? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it is unsafe, you know, that children become uh, dangerous, aggressive to the point of being dangerous, and that's not uh, their intention. Mm. But uh, because they become so dysregulated, they are, you know, throwing things or trying to strangle someone or whatever. If you are in danger, then I think it's worth thinking about a safety plan, Mm -hmm. and I'll talk about that in a minute. But Mm -hmm. let's assume for a second you're not talking about danger, danger. You're actually just talking about... I, it starts to make me feel unsafe as a parent, mm-hmm. partly probably because I also have some trauma in my past. Mm-hmm. And when my child goes off and calls me awful names and and threatens to kill me, mm-hmm. there is a, something that is triggered in me. So not only am I living the present, I'm reliving the past yep. at that point as well. Now, the temptation then, of course, is to put myself out of the way of that child because... Mm-hmm. A, I will feel safer when that happens, and B, I'm annoyed with them. You know, they're, what they're doing is awful.
1: Yeah, you don't want to be around them. Yes, exactly. The
0: trouble is, with things like timeout and those sorts of things, is that we're saying to kids, hey, you're having a really big feeling and I need you to organise that feeling and contain it. By b- yourself. By yourself. Mm. And remembering they're missing those integrative fibres, that that highway. Mm -hmm. So, basically, you're asking them something that they're actually not capable of doing. And because they're not capable of doing it, you may well find that when you send them off to their room in timeout, they're smashing up the joint, they're, you know, getting worse and worse, actually. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things we kind of practice is time in, which is this idea of, yes, we're going to use some calming down time, you're absolutely on the money about that one, but we're going to do it together. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do it together so that you know that I'm going to help you contain your feelings. Now, different kids need different things to calm down. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people have calming down spaces which are very bare because actually they worry the kids are going to break whatever's in there or whatever, Just mm-hmm. legitimate. But if you can have things like a box of textures, you know, that's very classic, people with, you know, sheepskins and spiky balls and all that sort of stuff where there's something that's sort of Unbreakable that they can have there to just use their sensory input to calm down. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people have colouring, uh, you know, one colouring book and a few colouring pencils, and, and they just ask the kid to do that as they cal- their calming down activity. Mm-hmm. So it, it really up to you, whatever kind of works with your kid in terms mm-hmm. of calming down. Lots of people try, you know, hey, we're going to do breathing. Hey, we're going to. I think that often you can do that once you have what we'd call the foundation of relationship. Mm -hmm. So uh, kids will do all sorts of things for you once they trust you. Right. But if you're talking about a kid who's had complex trauma, either because your family's been through trauma or this is maybe a foster kid and come into your care, then um, the first thing is really about building that foundation of relationship. Because I'm not going to follow any instruction you give me until I know you're competent mm-hmm. and that you have your my best interests at heart. Yeah. And that is not an experience I've had with a lot of adults. So it's going to take quite a long time for you to earn that. Yeah, And when you earn that, then probably you can do things
1: like breathing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's that idea of connection before correction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> So, when you're talking about a kid who's unsafe, mm-hmm. who is actually unsafe, mm. when they get dysregulated, then um, what we try to do is you do have to separate yourself, of course. Everybody's got a right to feel safe. And even even though you're a parent and even though your kid might be quite young, mm-hmm. if they are unsafe, then you need to separate yourself from them. And usually, you've got to take the other kids with you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: However, you want to keep that connection as you said, if when you lose that connection, then the kid is kind of drifting in space and they will just escalate and escalate. So uh, there are lots of ways that people do it. One example, I guess, is that, uh, you know, I, I say to Charlie, hey, Charlie, when this happens again, um, I'm going to take my phone and my keys that are by the door. I'm going to stand outside, but I can see through the window.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to stand outside because I don't feel safe. You've got to show me that I'm safe. And as soon as you can show me that I'm safe, I would love to hear what you have to say.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you can show me I'm safe by sitting on this chair here, mm-hmm. for instance, put the knife down, whatever, you know, whatever is sensible that says, okay, that shows me that you are telling me I'm safe. Right. And you just repeat that kind of like a broken record. Uh, and of course, you know, it relies on being able to see through the window and all that sort of stuff. So it's very helpful to have someone help you make your safety plan. Mm-hmm. As soon as it's, I see my kid show me I'm safe, then I will come in mm-hmm. very, very quickly. It's very important that you don't let any time waste at that time. Sure. You come in quickly, you say, hey, Charlie, great showing me I'm safe. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. What did you want to tell me? Uh, and then you can manage it how you would normally manage tantrums, if that makes sense. So th- it's kind of an, a little extra at the beginning where you're just trying to say, I need to move myself away physically. Mm-hmm but I'm still relationally engaged with you. Yeah. And for that reason, you don't have to panic. Uh And as soon as you show me I'm safe, I'm back in.
1: Yeah. And I think probably something really important in that is that clear conversation before things kick off so that the child knows what to expect. They know that you're just going to step outside and you're still there and this is what is expected of them. Yes.
0: Yes. And we say it like, oh, just um, be very, very calm while, (laughs) you know, my kid's walking around with a knife. That is, it's not easy, no. and um, actually a lot of carers that I work with or parents I work with, uh, they're actually outside on the phone to their sister or their caseworker mm-hmm. being um, talked down, you know, to, that somebody is saying, hey, you're doing a great job, just tell Charlie, he can show you he's safe, you're yeah. safe by sitting on the chair. Uh, so you may well need help. Mm-hmm. You may well go outside and the kid may um, smash some stuff. Mm. You know that's that's a possibility, uh, but you have to think to yourself: your safety is the most important thing. Yeah. Um, sometimes kids do keep escalating, keep escalating, and then you may well have to think of things like calling someone, calling the police. Mm-hmm. I know that's not always an option if you're in a very uh, rural area. So it is worth, I think, in a safety plan, really try and understand the details of what's
2: going to happen.
1: Yeah.
0: I do think also, though, you want the that principle of. I'm going to keep myself safe, mm-hmm. but I want to show you I'm still connected.
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a very delicate balance to hold, yeah, I think, and, yeah. and especially in these systems that are traumatized. And as as you said, having that person identified who will help regulate the parent or the, the yes, caregiver yes. as well, that's probably an important part of the safety plan. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. How helpful is it to label someone's traumatic experience as traumatic
0: I wrote a parenting program called Black Box Parenting, Mm -hmm. which is for people who've been through things like family violence. Right. And one of the things, it was originally a program developed for fathers in drug and alcohol rehab. Mm -hmm. And one of the things the fathers sort of got into was, uh, what do you mean by trauma?
2: Mm.
0: Is this trauma? Is this trauma? Is this trauma? And actually, some of those conversations were not particularly constructive. Mm -hmm. So in the end, we actually, um, when I wrote the manual, I used the word unpredictability. Mm -hmm. I think partly because some people don't want to say my child has been traumatized Mm. by what has happened, particularly if the child, for instance, didn't witness what happened, or they were in the other room. And then you get into, did they really experience it in inverted commas? Mm-hmm. So we just talk about unpredictability. Sometimes people say, oh, one of the things is because um, of my violent ex-partner, we've moved 16 times in the last year. Yep. Now, is that traumatic? Well, it's not a threat to life. Mm-hmm. Is it unpredictable? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And so uh, are there things about that which maybe my child might struggle with? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we use the word unpredictability, a lot of people are comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we say unsafe if you've been in unsafe situations. But of course, some people really like the word trauma Mm -hmm. because it really um, validates the gravity of what they've been through. So that's
1: fine too. Mm -hmm. So you've dropped a few through the conversation, but what are some helpful metaphors to use when talking about trauma?
0: I mean, I think there are a lot of things you want to get your head around, Mm -hmm. but generally we're thinking when complex trauma, we're thinking about brains Mm -hmm. and we're thinking about relationships and attachment. So when we're thinking about brains, as I said, you know, there's this kind of the way that the brain grows and uh, the different zones that we we talk about zones, so this idea about a green zone or a calm zone Mm -hmm. and then a yellow kind of I'm starting to kick off zone. And then in the red zone that my thinking brain goes off, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know, my reacting brain comes right online and my thinking brain is off. And I was just saying, I saw this perfect example the other day in the supermarket where uh, a a toddler was having a very, very big meltdown, you know, and looked very red zone. I don't know if he really was. Mm -hmm. Uh, Looked very red zone. And then, of course, the parent, you know, fair enough, was trying to negotiate, Mm -hmm. trying to say, hey, if you calm down now, you can... I think, have a chocolate bar before we go or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is very sensible mm-hmm. but is the wrong strategy for the wrong zone. Mm. And so when we talk about complex trauma and particularly parenting after complex trauma, uh, you want to think about, hey, what's happening in the brain of this kid at the moment? Yeah, And, of course, thinking about, you know, he looked about three, there's a kid who's 20-plus years from his brain growing in. <laughs> yeah, sure. So that's a different Experience, yeah. you know, that isn't a brain that's working like an adult
2: brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's kind of brain metaphors. We And as you said, there's Dan Siegel metaphor. There's mm-hmm. lots of different metaphors for that. I think when we talk about attachment mm-hmm. uh, and particularly attachment trauma, there's a couple of things. One is uh, the push-pull we always talk about. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just this idea that um, people who've been through trauma are much more comfortable, very far apart
2: mm-hmm.
0: or very close together. That's a bit of a weird one for a lot of people, but a feeling of being enmeshed or almost the same person, Mm -hmm. right? And if if I'm trying to be the same person, I like everything you like. If you hate dad, I hate dad. I like my eggs the way you like your eggs, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Me being the same person is minimal conflict and the safest thing to do. Mm -hmm. When we ask people to come to therapy or we ask people to be healthy parents, We actually ask them to be in a kind of relationship where we're engaged, but we're different people. Mm -hmm. And being engaged but not enmeshed is very uncomfortable for people who've had relational trauma. It's very unsafe, feels unsafe Mm to them. So we talk about push-pull. Often people are either pushing people away Mm -hmm. by uh, sometimes physically pushing them, sometimes, you know, screaming at them, telling them, I don't care, whatever, uh, and sometimes they're really trying to pull people in, you know, be very helpless. Mummy, can you help me with my shoelaces? Mm-hmm. I can't do anything without you. You need to feed me, that kind of stuff. Sometimes people are doing both simultaneously almost. And that push-pull, that kind of bouncing between, a lot of carers and parents find very challenging. Mm. And I think that's that's fair enough because you don't really know where you are
2: with that. Yep.
0: I guess the other big thing we use, of course, is the black box metaphor. Mm-hmm. And the black box metaphor is really just saying let's talk about the effects of trauma mm-hmm. without having to talk about the traumatic incident. Right. Because a lot of us are not trauma specialists, as he mm-hmm. said, then um, I really wanted to make a way that, that your generalist uh, practitioner
2: mm-hmm.
0: could talk about, hey, what's, how's the past affecting the present? hmm but I don't need to get into uh, re-exposure work, imaginal um, scripting, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. One of the things about the black box is just to say, okay, something sits in here in the black box, this unknown box, which represents your experiences of the past. Mm-hmm. And that can be guilt and, and um, rejection and violence and all sorts of stuff. So I have an intended message, something that I want to say to you, that, mm-hmm. that I really want to communicate to you. Now, that's an important thing that I am wanting to to get over to you, but it goes into my black box and then something comes out which isn't my intended message. Mm-hmm. And then you have a black box because mm-hmm. every person has a black box. And then what you actually hear is something different. Right. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put more um, stuff up about this in resources. But yeah. the idea that I'm trying to communicate something, let's say I think the classic example is I need space. I mm-hmm. need space. And that comes out as, hey, Dale, go away. Ouch, my feelings. <laughs> yes. And then, Dale, you hear not just like, oh, mum's being mean to me, but mm. actually mum doesn't care. Mum do- doesn't love me. Mum doesn't love me. Yeah, good one. So I think that kind of um, miscommunication, Mm. happens all the time, not just between parents and children, but between um, adults and their landlords, employees and their employers, Mm -hmm. clients and their therapists. You know, there's an intended message, but the received message is garbled Mm -hmm. by both the speaker's black box and the listener's black box. Yeah. And so the intention really is not necessarily to say, oh, well, let's just um, throw out the black boxes and um, everything will be much easier, which Mm -hmm. it certainly would be. But actually to say, hey, can we step back and work around them? Mm -hmm. You know, can we step back and look over my black box or look around my black box and say, is that really what Dale meant to say to me? Mm -hmm. Or is it possible that my black box is just garbling that slightly? Mm. And I think that's important because when you really come from trauma, complex trauma, mm-hmm. you are preoccupied with safety. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, of course. You wouldn't be alive if you weren't really good at that. Mm. So the black box is preoccupied with safety. Yeah. And sometimes when you're talking about something that's nothing to do with safety, the black box interprets it as a threat, a
1: threat, safety.
0: something that I have to respond to with my reacting brain. Yeah. And that sometimes gets me in trouble, you know, mm-hmm. maybe my tenancy is under threat or I've lost my job or I yelled at the people at Centrelink or whatever mm-hmm. because actually I felt there was a threat. Yeah. And people often phrase it as um, people didn't respect me, something didn't, mm, somebody didn't respect it's something me. Something I've heard a lot. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. But really what they mean is there was some threat. mm uh, and I needed to put down that threat in order to show them that I was not going to be hurt or mm. harmed by them, which is important yeah. in an actual threatening situation.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: So I think one of the things that um, people say to me is, hey, I, I've seen a client and I've only really got, I don't know, 10 sessions, 12 sessions, mm-hmm. and I can really see the complex trauma is part of what's happening for this person, mm-hmm. but I don't know what to do. Mm. And I'm, I'm not going to do all the re-exposure stuff because I'm not qualified and I don't feel confident, which is fair enough. Yep. So I think what we can do, though, is educate people about, hey, do you think some of these things are actually the past mm-hmm. affecting the present? Mm-hmm. And is there some way in which you would like to work around your black box or turn down your black box mm-hmm. or put it to the side or whatever you want to call it so that it's not quite running the show all the time?
1: Yeah, so it's much more about recognising how their past experiences have shaped the way they interact with the world now and when that isn't maybe as helpful as it probably was in the past. Yeah, absolutely. It now gets in the way. Yep. Okay. I'm wondering about the role of shame in these conversations and how that might show up.
0: I mean, uh, we know that um, one of the ways in which people abuse people is to make them feel ashamed of themselves. Uh, and it's a very good way to control people and get them to do what you want them to do. Uh, so, yes, of course, people who've had complex trauma, something within them is often feeling broken or dirty or, you know, not able to be shown to anybody else. Mm-hmm. In Black Box, we do talk about this thing called the um guilt spectrum, mm-hmm. And that is, it starts, I mean, I know these words mean to, different things to different people, but in, in Black Box, we talk about regret mm-hmm. and the idea about regret being, oh, that didn't go great, or I really feel like that was a mistake, but I will do different next time, or there's something that I could do to improve that or make that up. Mm-hmm. So in the sense, regret is helpful. It's really good to to recognize when things
1: have gone awry. It helps us reflect and absolutely. do absolutely Yeah,
0: yeah. And then kind of moving on from regret is this idea about guilt. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Uh, And I remember one parent said to me, guilt is like a weight, you know, Mm. something that you drag around. And it's not necessarily bad, but it just makes things slightly harder and slightly, you know, seem like a bigger mountain to climb. Mm. And then after that is what we would call shame. Mm. And shame is very well kind of researched and it, it talks about things like, you know, I'm ashamed of who I am, not just the things I've done.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, If I'm a bad person, what's the point of doing anything that's good? Mm Because it will just fall apart in my hands. So, I think we all understand that shame is not helpful. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of parents, often parents out of family violence, feel like guilt is something they owe people. Do, Do you mean? Yeah, it's a weird thing. So, if I don't feel guilty about the terrible things that have happened to my children, then um I don't love my children. Ah, uh, yep.
1: I'm a bad parent.
0: Yeah. Or I'm a bad person, you sure. know. I wouldn't if I don't feel ba- guilty
1: mm-hmm.
0: about what what is genuinely a terrible experience. Mm. It's like I don't care.
2: Mhm.
0: And that is uh makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. The problem is of course that uh if I'm dragging a weight around, I'm less likely to do things differently. Mhm. And if I need to do things differently in order to be a better parent or a better spouse or a better employee or whatever, Uh I'm less likely to do that because I'm holding this weight. Right. So sometimes I'm trying to give the gift of guilt, but actually, uh, what they'd rather have is a better parent, a parent who turns up or is more available, who, you know, is happier and spends less time crying in their room and Mm -hmm. whatever. So, lots of people have never asked their kids what would what they would rather. But actually, uh, there's something to be said about putting down the burden, hmm. and that isn't uh, easy. You know, that isn't a thing that you just decide to do one day, and tomorrow it's gone. But I
1: do think uh, giving yourself
0: permission to do it is the first step.
1: I'm I'm wondering also about the the recognition of the burden of guilt and and helping people recognise where it is getting in the way, you know, thinking yeah. about that idea of I have to feel guilty to be a good parent. Yes, yeah. It could feel perhaps a little bit threatening to be told, you can put that down.
0: Yeah, 100%. And, and I think uh, lots of people, particularly women and men who've been in domestically violent situations, mm-hmm. are so used to being blamed for things yeah. that are actually not their fault that when things, they have contributed some, um something happening, mm-hmm. it is very hard to forgive themselves mm. for that. That is not um, something that's familiar to them and it's not something that's echoed in the people around them necessarily. People mm-hmm. are still blaming them, still saying, why didn't you leave earlier? If you really loved your kids, you would have gone really early, mm. those
2: kinds
1: of things.
0: I also think there's a, um, and we do talk about this in the parenting group, it's worth thinking about cultural stories or the stories of your neighborhood. When I say culture, I don't necessarily mean ethnicity, Mm -hmm. although that may well play a very big part, but uh, where you grew up and the family that you grew up in and the uh, community you grew up in and how did people see parenting and gender and power and all those kinds of things. Mm. and. Often when I work in rural communities, I'm I'm a little bit stunned. Although I 100% know it, I'm a little bit stunned how incredibly worried people are about asking for help. Mm. You know that that is just a, a completely foreign kind of concept, uh, and there are lots of people in those communities who do not believe that. Mm-hmm. But that concept that asking for help is a sign of weakness, mm-hmm. which we um, kind of laughingly refer to sometimes. As a really genuine. Stigma. Yeah. And if you grow up in a, a place where that's a really genuine stigma, then some doors are going to be closed to you mm. as you try to make your way out of that situation that you're in.
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting to think about also with the safety plan and talking about the importance of having someone that you can call yes. when things go awry. And sometimes that person will be a professional, but sometimes it's nice to have a community member, 100%. like a friend or an aunt or something.
0: Yeah, and I think um, those kinds of things, people want to help, right? Mm. I mean, sometimes (laughs) people want to help and they don't quite know how to help. And I think this idea of really expanding people's what we call natural supports or supports that Mm -hmm. are not professionals, Mm. uh, I think that's a really promising direction that mental health is going in and really recognising that those things are not optional extras. They should be right at the heart of treatment plans.
1: We may not always know if a client has trauma in their background. And we did speak before a little bit about what we might see if someone has sort of more of an acute trauma. What might we notice if there is complex trauma sitting in the back?
0: I think usually what you will notice is the kind of testing of the therapeutic relationship.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if you think about the therapeutic frame or well, this idea that, you know, as my as my practitioner and as the client, we are going to be engaged And in a quite intimate relationship, really, I'm Mm -hmm. going to tell you a lot of stuff, Mm. but we're not going to be the same person and we're not going to be friends. This is a very clear boundary that's happening. Then that kind of thing uh, feels very uncomfortable for a lot of people who've been through relational trauma. Mm -hmm. And there will often be a push-pull. And the pull might be you're the best practitioner I've ever had, mm-hmm. uh, nobody understands me but you, mm-hmm. I have zero natural supports. So you're the only one who gets me, that kind of stuff. Uh, and the push might be you're terrible, that, that <laughs> kind of very obvious push, but also turning up late, skipping mm-hmm. uh, sessions without real explanation, coming on the day that you haven't got the appointment, those kinds of things. Um, Things that disorientate you as a practitioner, make you feel like, what's going on here with this person, Mm -hmm. often are an attempt to make you, ironically, predictable, Mm -hmm. to test you, to see if you're going to be around, and what are you going to do if I push you here, and what are you going to do if I pull you here? So, if somebody's pushing, I always say to people, the job is to invite them in, Mm -hmm. not make them come in. But invite them in, and you can work out how you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. And if people are pulling, um, then the job is really to encourage independence or autonomy.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: And that can be in a lot of pla- in a lot of cases. Hey, shall we have a break from therapy?
2: Right.
0: I mean, I know a lot of people who are, who work in uh, rural positions, mm-hmm. and they have a subsection of their caseload that they've seen for years. You mm-hmm. know, two years, three years. And they're just kind of ticking along, trying to help them s- keep their heads above water, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, however, I think it's worth thinking, even though that person may well have complex trauma and a lot going on, can you encourage independence? Can you say, hey, I think you've got this
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I think we should have a trial of you having this. And of course you can always come back and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, but there's this kind of idea that, uh, a lot of people who've had a lot of trauma in their backgrounds think, "Oh, for the rest of the, my life, I'll be in therapy."
1: Yeah, that's definitely an idea I've heard a lot. Yeah, yeah. and
0: I mean, you can see why, right? Yeah, a, a lot of stuff has happened. Yeah, but I think the important job of therapy is to give people the the possibility of living lives without therapy. Mm. And I'm not saying it's always going to work. And sometimes, yes, people may well be in therapy for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I think you're also trying to work on skills that the person can apply to the new crisis of the week or Mm -hmm. the thing that is coming up. If you get to the point where you understand, oh, this is a new situation, but what it's doing is exactly the same thing as the old situation, which is triggering my black box. Mm -hmm. And remember, we did that before and before that and before that. Ah, right. Yes. And I remember what we did then and I feel confident to maybe give that a go.
1: It's almost removing the little life jacket of the water wings yeah, in a way.
0: Yeah, and um, that kind of makes it feel like it's a little thing, but I know um, it's not just that I worry that therapy keeps me okay mm. and and sometimes keeps me alive because mm. I become quite suicidal if I don't see people. Sure. But I also think when we talk about um, giving up attachment strategies, uh-huh. we need to recognize that attachment is life and death. Mm. As a small child, if I do not get people to attach to me, I am not making it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Nobody will feed me. Nobody will protect me. And I and children do die. Yeah. So I need to be very serious about my attachment strategies. And so often when we ask people to give up these attachment strategies, it seems like a, hey, why don't you give up smoking kind of thing? Mm-hmm. It's not. Mm. It's more like, hey, why don't you give up breathing for a bit and see <laughs> how you go? So it I think it does feel very threatening yeah. to a lot of people. But I guess that's part of the journey that a lot of my consumers would say, actually, when I, when I had a little bit of a go by myself, that's when I really thought, oh, maybe I can do this.
1: Yeah, it's it's a nice opportunity to foster that autonomy in someone who maybe has not had much of an experience of someone trusting that they can do something.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know you're all in your cars thinking, oh, yes, (laughs) but, uh, you know, this person doesn't have enough natural supports or Mm. there's um, no specialist service where I live or those kinds of things. I'm not saying it's for everybody. But I'm just saying I do think uh, that is an important part of the therapy, is Mm. the
1: ending of the therapy. (laughs) I, I also think it's probably worth acknowledging the practitioner anxiety in making yes. that call. Yes. Am I making the right call? Am I calling this too early? Yes. What would you say to, to e- that?
0: Yeah, and, and working with people with complex trauma involves holding risk mm. often, mm-hmm. yeah? And I think there is um, legitimate anxiety that people have mm. that um, people are going to be unsafe or that they're going to get themselves in a situation where they're unsafe, like drink a lot or... Mm-hmm. Uh, go out and be incredibly promiscuous with people that they don't know and may well be unsafe, I think that there's a kind of uh, opportunity cost in being too safe, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense to you. Um, And one of the things I do remind myself often is these people are survivors, people Mm. who see me when they're uh, even 12 or up or whatever, they've already had enormous challenges, life-threatening challenges, which they have got themselves through. Mm. And, um, I actually think a lot of my clients who on paper look very suicidal mm-hmm. actually really want to live mm. because they, they fight tooth and nail to attach to people to make sure that those people stick around so that they will survive. Mm. And so I try to keep that in mind, you know, despite what they say to me, because sometimes people do, uh, use this, the suicidal, um, I wouldn't call them gestures, but s- and sometimes people do talk about suicide as a way of kind of inviting an attachment. Yeah. And I do think it's worth thinking, okay, this is somebody who's really pretty tough,
2: you yeah. know, has
0: has actually got themselves pretty far. Uh, and it's worth having a conversation with them about yeah. that and, and why that story makes sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and then to think about, okay, so what I'm asking is very big, but you've got enormous resources. Mm-hmm. And so let's see if we're keen to give it a go.
1: Yeah.
0: And then let's talk about the rewards. Should it
1: work? Mm-hmm. It's a nice way to frame it, I think. And and making sure that they know why it's worth trying. Yeah. It's a very scary thing. To and do. they
0: might say, No, I'm not I'm <laughs> not into it. You know, you, I know you think uh, it's fine, but I'm not into it. Well, fair enough.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So, I think within that, we have talked about sort of complex trauma, and and we've really, and we've talked about families in particular, and so I think part of what's coming up in my mind is this idea of a traumatized system. Mm. I think I made reference to it earlier, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm wondering what one individual practitioner can do within Mm -hmm. a whole system.
0: So, when we talk about, well, there's two things, traumatized systems and traumatizing systems. Sure. Um, and they usually one in the same. But um, a traumatized system, I suppose, is often uh, something we talk about where they deal a lot with uh, life-threatening situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the very classic examples are child protection and the health system. Yep. Uh, and they can often lead to traumatizing systems, which uh, when you work in those systems, you come out traumatized, vicariously mm-hmm. traumatized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those classic examples are things like the refugee system, The justice system. Uh, And so there's obviously enormous crossover between those two things. A couple of things I'll just say about it. One is crisis-driven decision-making and this idea that uh, we need to respond very quickly. Mm. And often that's true. I'm imagining if you work in an emergency department, which I never have, being very quick in terms of a medical intervention is often very helpful. However, often when we make decisions in a crisis, We lack that kind of uh, forest for the trees view. Mm. And having worked in the out-of-home care system for many years, I think sometimes there is a bit of a default to doing something Mm -hmm. rather than stepping back and saying, should we do something Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and when should we do something. Uh, And I know that's very hard and I do know that often then the risk has to sit with someone Mm. Uh, my recommendation is it sits with several someones, Mm -hmm. that it shouldn't just sit with one person. So if you can, I know it's very hard if you're the one person (laughs) in the traumatised system, if you can get a buddy, somebody who can actually, but you bounce your ideas off and you both agree, yes, actually the crisis would suggest we should do this now, Mm -hmm. but actually the long-term treatment plan might suggest we do something else.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting thinking about responding in crisis. Um, I know that in the past when I've worked with families, when something has happened, there's this massive push from the family mm. to me to fix it. Yes. And and often I've responded to that and then I've kind of stepped back afterward and said, oh, that was not the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> How might a practitioner kind of hold that space with the family when they're so desperate?
0: So hard, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I remember when we were working with a community and there was um, a number of deaths by suicide in mm. the uh, youth community. And there was a very strong push to do something, which totally understandable. Mm. However, what are you going to do, you know, at, at, in a short-term mm-hmm. sense? Some things are probably semi-useful. You know, you could be offering some support to the community and and – a space where people could talk about how they felt about the the desks and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But I think there was a push towards increasing the mental health of the youth immediately.
2: Mm.
0: And that's tricky, of course. It's not (laughs) a short-term little project. So I think one of the things that is very helpful is to say, hey, before we do anything, let's just stop for a second. Uh What is it that we actually want to achieve here? So there might be something that we do in the short term that we understand to be Mm semi-useful and certainly not unhelpful. There are some things that we know that we want to achieve, but they're not short-term things. Mm -hmm. And so we can start to work on those things. But first of all, we might need to manage the expectation and say, if we want to do this, it might take this amount of time. Mm. I also think it's very important to, uh, and this is sort of a Bowen family systems kind of approach, mm-hmm. but it's important to state your own opinions rather than kind of saying, we we should all do blah mm-hmm. or we've talked about it and this, to actually say, um, this is how I'm feeling. This is how I think we might proceed. And then this is the responsibility I'm going to take to act on those actions. This is the con- contribution I'm going to give. And of course, if you're a I don't know, a boss or a director or something, then maybe you've got resources at your disposal. You can contribute a lot. Mm-hmm. If you are a frontline practitioner, you maybe what you can uh, contribute is what they uh, Bowen would call managing yourself. Mm-hmm. That is to actually say, yeah, I'm going to undertake the kinds of self-care and the kinds of um, stepping back that allows me not to be driven by crisis at this particular point.
1: I think that brings to a really nice question around looking after yourself as a practitioner. We're talking about traumatized systems, and as practitioners, we become part of the system. How do we take care of ourselves within that?
0: Yeah. People always ask me that. Like, there's some secret, um, you know. What's the secret? Kevlar Kevlar, (laughs) vest you can put on. This is hard work. Mm, You know, um, traumatic uh, intervention is hard work. Mm -hmm. A couple of things. One is when I said uh, the black box metaphor, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I came up with the black box metaphor is so I don't have to hear as many traumatic stories Mm. because I've heard a lot Mm. and they start to pile up and they're pretty icky. You know, they're kind of like a bit of a black tar Mm -hmm. and if you have too many of them, I think it, it does become quite hard. So sometimes you do want to hear people's stories. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to say to people, don't ever tell people what's in the box. Mm -hmm. But if I'm in a group and a parenting group at that, Mm -hmm. it might not be very constructive for me to hear the traumatic details of the incident. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It's enough for me to know you've had some experiences of being unsafe. So that was one of the reasons why I came up with this kind of metaphor. Mm -hmm. And you might, as a generalist practitioner, say – Hey, I'm not really trained in trauma work per se, uh-huh. but I can help you with the effects of trauma. Mm. And I don't need to hear all the terrible details of all the stuff that happened to you. Some people would be very relieved to hear that uh-huh. from their th- from their therapist <laughs> or protector. The other thing I'll just say is, if you, lots of people say self care is about things you do, mm. you know, um, meditate and. Eat right and run, and I don't do any of those things. So, um, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, admit it now in public, <laughs> but, um, I think it's about how you think about the work. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really changed my life was really thinking about narrative practice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and one of, um, the, the kind of rights of people in, in when you talk about a narrative framework, they say people have a right to have their, Uh, responses to trauma acknowledged.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So often you're hearing this story where something happened to someone Mm. and you kind of forget the part of the story where they did something in response. Right. And I always think of this kid I saw many, many years ago, so hopefully this is confidential enough, many, many years ago, who was having um, what it was an abusive home Mm -hmm. and she was 12 and she walked into the local child protection office and she said, hey, I'm not putting up with this anymore. Uh, can you do something about
2: it?
1: Right.
0: And that was a very sad story considering, yeah. you know, what had happened to her. But the fact that she just walked into this office, exactly the right office, I might say, mm. and said, I, I deserve better, I think is terribly inspiring. Mm. You know, there's something about it that's very um, hopeful And and I think a lot of the people that I do work with who have had complex trauma Mm. are incredible people.
2: Mm. You know, Mm -hmm.
0: they just really got a lot going on and they're still, you know, saying, hey, I deserve better. I'm still interested in having a healthy relationship. Mm. I think that maybe I'll have children, which is like this ultimate act of hope. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think I'm going to do better than my parents. Mm. And. Sometimes they say, oh, you know, I'm really going to do the opposite of my parents. I'm going to love this kid and they're going to know that they're loved and all that sort of stuff. Now, is it easy for them? Do they always do it in a perfect manner? Does it always get communicated exactly how they intend? No. Mm. But I think that intention and that kind of, I don't know, continuing to feel like, yeah, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to go onwards. Mm. um, Does sort of chastise me when I'm feeling slightly like, oh, there's a lot, there's a lot of burden. (laughs) All, and all of those things. But but I would also say, you know, there's some very practical things about how many hours you work, mm-hmm. how many families you see, how many people you see with trauma versus people that you see with perfectly wonderful, nice families where there's a small amount of I don't know
1: anxiety or something like that
0: yeah it's a balance of a caseload
2: probably
1: absolutely it's it's also a really nice reminder where I'll not not in every situation but I remember working in a sexual assault service Mm. and my supervisor there was like remember when they're seeing you they're safe Mm. and that was Mm. something I really held on to in that work because it was hard work but I was like but right now they're safe and they're working to make things better right um and that was yeah a very nice reminder and coming back to that survivor Yeah, Yeah. they've survived and they're continuing to survive.
0: And I think, I mean, for me, particularly why I I choose to work in parenting Mm -hmm. is that I believe that when we get the parenting right and the recovery includes families, Mm -hmm. not just an individual person, we will reduce violence in the future. We know that in the research says if you experience violence as a child, you're more likely to be involved when you're older. And I think the only way to break that is to actually treat people, treat families, and give them a way that's different. Mm-hmm. And if we're able to do that, then we will have less people coming to sexual assault services and less people coming to child protection and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just a very long horizon. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's the long game. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So we've covered a fair bit of information Um I'm wondering, and, and you sort of mentioned it before, but if a practitioner only has a limited time to connect with someone, so yes. you know, they're short amount of sessions, but this person has a history of trauma, what would be your key points to hit?
0: I think when I'm in that situation, the one thing I want the person to walk away with is a really good formulation, conceptualization, whatever you want to call it, story about what's going on. Mm-hmm. So that the person walks away thinking, oh, the things that I'm doing make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm in my history, considering my history, Uh, and the way that my brain has been grown and the way that my um, attachment apparatus has been grown, there is lots of things that I'm doing that make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I'm not broken. I don't have brain damage. I am somebody who actually has perfectly adapted to an incredibly harsh environment. Mm. Uh, And I think you can do that in two or three sessions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's life-changing for people. And then to clearly say, you know, if you want to do something about those re-experiencing symptoms, those flashback symptoms, you probably do have to do some re-exposure work. Mm -hmm. And that's what this that looks like, and this is how you might prepare for that. And in order to do that, you probably need to build up your natural supports and Mm -hmm. so how are we going to get you more involved and how are we going to gather people around you and blah, blah, blah. So I think just really getting people to understand what's going on Mm-hmm. Is, a, is a therapeutic goal, Yeah. sometimes from there people don't need your help because, mm-hmm. in fact, they go to use online services or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I would also say, though, sometimes people just having the connection between what's happened in the past and what's happening now recognized
2: mm-hmm.
0: is validating enough for them to start saying, okay, well, I understand that that's happening because of what's happened in the past. But I'm actually a capable, I'm at a place in my life where I can start to do differently. Uh-huh. And I actually don't need a therapist to help me with that. I just will start to experiment in my relationships with being, let's say, more open, more, more close, whatever, uh-huh. and see what happens. Mm. And then a kind of virtuous cycle can happen out of that. But if, if there was one thing I wanted to give people, it's an understanding of uh-huh. what's going on.
1: Yeah, I think that can be really powerful for someone who just has questions. Why Why does this keep happening?
0: Yeah, I mean, often I think they don't have questions. They're, the answer is because I'm bad, because mm, I'm bad, because I'm cursed, because I'm damaged goods, because I'm a bad seed, because my mum recognising me, my violent father, or whatever. They, mm. These are the reasons why these things keep happening to me. So it's not just that there's a blank hole there. There's, <laughs> a, there's an explanation which is actually really damaging mm. and limiting yeah.
1: yeah okay lovely this podcast episode is going up on our learning platform as all of our podcast episodes are and with this episode we want to have some resources just off the top of your head what would you recommend people might start with if they're interested in developing a bit more knowledge
0: look I think I mentioned before Bruce Perry hmm he uh, he's a very famous book called The Whole Brain Child. Oh, I know that book. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Siegel, as I mentioned. Mm. There is a, a whole kind of whole school of thought mm-hmm. in trauma about embodiment and this idea that we do a lot of talking in trauma treatment, uh, but actually trauma happens in the body. Mm. And that's a very interesting kind of path, I think. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in that kind of stuff, Pat Ogden, I guess, is a, a yeah. person to start with. Uh, If you're interested in attachment and attachment strategies, there's a a theorist called Patricia Crittenden Mm -hmm. who um, I really like. I think she's really, really helpful. Sometimes her stuff is quite dense. People find it hard to read. But if you YouTube her name, I'm sure that there are presentations and things like that. Lots of people have said they've seen her speak. They find that much easier to digest at the beginning. But I think in terms of the the idea about trauma and all those sorts of things, I think really just starting with the basics that we've covered here, Mm -hmm. don't feel like you have to know all the theory because some of it is very straightforward Mm. and all you need to do is say, hey, this is all I know about it and I'm just offering you this idea and see if it fits with you.
1: All right. So that brings us to the end of the questions. I hope this conversation has sparked some understanding for our listeners. It was, I feel like I've just received a masterclass. That was (laughs) nice. And just, again, a reminder that we'll have additional resources and we'll also have a transcript of the podcast on our learning portal. Thank you again, Rebecca, for being a part of this. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners.
0: I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au